Hi, I'm Sunny Dean. And I'm Scott Drakeford. And this is the Publishing Radio Podcast. In 2022, we both launched debut novels in the same genre with the same publisher in the same year. But despite having very similar starts, our books, and subsequently each of our careers, went in very different directions. That pattern repeats itself throughout the industry over and over. Why do some books succeed while others seem to be dead on arrival? In this podcast, we aim to answer those questions and many more, along with how to build and maintain an author career. Everyone signing a contract deserves to know what they're really signing up for. In an industry that loves its secrets, we'll be sharing real details from real people. We'll cover the gamut of life as a Big Five published author, from agents to publishing contracts, finances, and more. Welcome to the Publishing Rodeo podcast, where we are extremely tired, but still trying really hard. <laughs> Today, we have Holly Race. We're, we're very excited to get into uh, her publishing journey and whatever secrets she can give us. Holly, do you want to give us the down low on who you are and what your journey's been like till now? Sure. Uh, thanks very much for having me. So I started out in theater and then moved into tv and film as a script editor working in development so i originally uh started as what's known as a script reader which is one of the first gatekeepers in the tv and film industries then i got a job working for ardman animations who have done movies like Shaun the Sheep and Chicken Run and uh, Pirates in an Adventure with Scientists. So all that fun stuff. After working with Ardman, I moved to London and I started working for a variety of companies like Working Title Films. I did some research for them on an early version of the film that would become Mary Queen of Scots and not on the script that eventually actually got made. Uh, that's another story. <laughs> um, and then working for Red Planet Pictures on the fourth series of a show called Death in Paradise, which is like a cosy crime drama on BBC One that's very, very popular. And I think it's in its 11th, 12th, 13th season now, something like that, something very impressive. After Red Planet, I, well, I was going to be working as script editor on season two of BBC's Dickensian, which was on like, I don't know, like six, seven years ago. And it was like a mashup of all of Dickens' characters. And it was a huge production for the BBC. And everyone thought it would run for a second season. So we started working on the second season and then they cancelled it due to low ratings. So it was kind of heartbreaking for everyone involved. At that point, I decided it was time to move on. So I ended up working for the Imaginarium Studios, which is the production company that's run by Andy Serkis of Gollum fame. He has a magnificent voice. I listened to just a bit of him uh, narrating the, the Lord of the Rings and good Lord. Oh, we've got that. We've got that audiobook in the car. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's, a, he's, a, he's a true gentleman. <laughs> um, I, I ended up getting made redundant from the Imaginarium. It, they made a lot of redundancies. And around that time, I had had this idea for a young adult fantasy novel. And I've been th thinking and talking about it for years. And my husband finally was like, will you just write the thing instead of telling me about it? Uh, but I'm the kind of person who needs a certificate before I feel like I'm allowed to do anything. So I went and did the Faber Academy's writing a novel course. And when I was made redundant, I was like, oh, well, this seems like a good time for me to spend my redundancy money and give myself some time to finish writing the novel and then I'll get a proper job again. And while I was finishing writing the novel, I found out I was pregnant and no one was going to give me a proper job <laughs> for a while. So yeah. I guess I became a full-time author uh, before I even had my book deal, <laughs> which was a really stupid idea, kids. <laughs> um, I, so I finished my novel, I got an agent, it was a very smooth and easy process for me, I got three offers within 48 hours, so I thought, <laughs> I'm done, I'm sorted, definitely can be a full-time writer. We went out on sub a couple of months later, and it was very slow, very quiet, and everyone was like, oh, we love it, but we don't know how to market it. 
And then a couple of months after that, we got one offer from Hockey Books, who are an imprint of Bonnier, for a three-book deal, because it's a trilogy. And we accepted. And it was, I think it was quite a good amount for YA, but let's just say it was not minimum wage and it was going to have to last me like five years. Um, <laughs> and I pretty much doubled it from my foreign rights sales. But yeah, I think overall from that three book deal, I got about £40,000, which I don't know what that is in dollars, $50,000, $60,000. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was that was me for three years. During that process, I went through two agents, just through agents leaving the agency that I was at. Um, and when I finished the trilogy, I was like, oh, I think maybe it's time for me to move on. So I approached an agent who I knew had read Midnight's Twins, my first book, ages ago, and was like, oh, I, I really liked your feedback from that. Do you think you might be willing to take me on based on just some ideas I have for future novels? And they said, oh, yeah, and we had a discussion and everything seemed really great. And so I signed with them and I left my previous agency. And then three weeks later, uh, they called me up when I was on holiday and said, actually, I don't think I'm the right agent to represent you after all. Really, really oh, sorry. No. <laughs> bye bye. I, so I had written up three chapters and a pitch for two different novels, one way, one adult at that point and sent it to them. And I think they had just realized that it wasn't what they wanted to represent. Because I did say to them, are you like, is it, is the writing bad? Am I just a bad writer? Should I just give up? And they're like, no, the writing's good. It's just not something I want to sell. I'm really sorry. Yeah, it was, it was a whole thing. I was on like a family reunion. I took the call in the bathroom of my hotel room while my daughter was sleeping because it was like 6 a.m. <laughs> It was pretty devastating. And my my third book, The End of the Trilogy, was coming out the following week. So I went into that because it was like my first ever launch because the first two books had launched during lockdowns. And I was just like, this might be the last launch I ever write, the last book I ever publish. I don't know. I'm out of contract now. Who knows what the future holds? Uh, and then I spent the next few months writing uh, an adult book, which was sort of like an adult version of the YA that I had pitched to this agent. And I was just like, I do think there's something here. I'm going to go for it. So I wrote it, rage writing, and <laughs> uh, a few months later got nine agent offers for that book within a couple of weeks, which was lovely. <laughs> but, but obviously yeah. I was like, well, I don't trust this anymore. <laughs> this could mean absolutely yeah. nothing. Who knows? Um, and yeah. I was a lot more particular about the questions I asked and who I approached at that point. And I did a lot of asking around about those agents. And yeah, a couple of months later, we went out with that adult fantasy trilogy and we got a six-figure three-book deal for it with Orbit. And now I can actually say five, six years later that I am actually a full-time writer and I can actually afford for the next few years to pay my bills with just my writing. So that's my, that's my journey to date. Sorry, that was really long. That was perfect. I'll come, I'll perfect. come back to ask about the, the first book deal in a second, but I just wanted to quickly ask, was there a reason why you changed from YA to adult? Was it like a marketing reason or just it felt like the book was moving in that direction? It felt like the the themes that I wanted to write about were more adult. It's the it's a feminist fantasy retelling of the six wives of Henry VIII. And it's told from the points yeah. of view of all six wives, all six queens. And so I wanted to kind of explore my experience of motherhood, which I obviously had since writing the YA book and various other kind of stuff that had sort of come up and yeah it, it just felt more adult but I won't lie there was when I went out to agents I said this could be YA it could be crossover it could be adults I'm kind of open to to rewriting it and editing it in a way in whatever way you think is going to give me a good deal and longevity as an author and I had agents come back to me say oh we'd like it to not only be YA, firmly YA, but also a standalone, not a trilogy. 
and others saying no it's definitely adult and others saying oh well we could take it out to both YA and adult publishers and see what happens in the end after talking to a lot of different people and going with the agent I went with we decided to pitch it securely at adult and I think that was the right decision for the book I wanted to write in the end. So when when you're writing what do you think for you makes the difference between a YA book and an adult book because this is always like a really hot topic of discussion Um, and I remember I'll just Mm -hmm. say very quickly that for me this came up because long ago when I was writing my first book which I envisioned as an adult epic fantasy and I was one of those people who paid for a manuscript assessment um, which some writers do when they're desperate and like to be clear this is not something I could afford I sold jewelry to to pay for that fee and I basically got this letter back from from the the manuscript assessment service that said well our recommendation for this manuscript is that you remove four of the five point of views uh, change it from adult to YA and strip out all the political and social commentary which is unsuited to a novel of this kind and it was like the worst writing advice I've ever received but wow um and it and it made me want to write adult more and to like put in this social and which I mean that's a whole thing like assuming that YA can't have social commentary but it's funny now because I'm now you know five or six years down the line I have actually been looking at that book again thinking I kind of want to rewrite it as YA because I've taken a lot of the adult elements out and used them in other books. (laughs) But but it's an interesting discussion with like, and I remember your editor, Britt, specifically, I had a thread from her bookmarked on Twitter where she went into the differences between YA and adult. But anyway, if you have thoughts on that, I'm very interested. (laughs) I've had this conversation a lot with other YA authors who are making the move or are thinking about making the move into adult. I definitely had a lot of worries that I couldn't write adult even though I didn't quite I can't quite pinpointed the difference between the two um I think I don't think it's anything personally to do with social and political commentary I mean my YA fantasy is basically a thinly disguised metaphor for the rise of populism in the world over the last 10 years so it's really really thinly disguised um I would say some of it is down to the characters and kind of the knotty decisions that they make and the moral decisions they make. I think that YA editors and obviously children's and middle grade editors are maybe more aware of the messaging and the role models that you're wanting to portray for a particular target audience. Whereas an adult, you can be more of a kind of undisguised anti-hero or anti-heroine maybe. Yeah. Sorry, my eldest child is requesting food and obviously podcasting. Out of <laughs> I will go down and get her something in just a bit. <laughs> I'm fine to take a break whenever. So. <laughs> no, no, it's all right. Um, that's that. It's fine. It's just that I was really interested, and I, I think one of the things that my agent had said talking about it to me was that YA focuses more on first, and that there is like a YA voice, and that there is uh, the, the intensity, the emotions, and stuff like that. But that's very hard to pin down, mm. I guess. Yeah, I agree that on the social the social front, like YA is very in your face actually with, with taking tackling social political issues. Yeah. Definitely at the forefront of that, maybe more so than adult. Yeah, I mean I think I don't I know people talk about the YA voice a lot and I can absolutely see that there are some commonalities and you know, YA I think there maybe is more of a tendency to write first person present or first person than in adult. But I think, you know, as with all genres, there's a way to, you can have literary YA, you can have commercial YA. It's, I think there is room for a range of voices in there. So being that you, you know, your, your first contract was YA and then your second was adult, when you went through everything you went through with the agent changes and everything, and then finally went on sub the second time, uh, were you submitting that second work as yourself the same same author name including information from your your first trilogy etc or was it kind of fresh slate uh your agent didn't mention that you had another series you know i'm just interested in what information was included (laughs) because the the general common wisdom i guess accepted wisdom in the in the industry is that your first deal kind of cements who you are as an author and the tier that you can uh, expect in the future, et cetera. And that wasn't the case for you. So I'm very interested to hear 
what you did to escape that? It was definitely something that I asked uh, my agent about was should I sub under a new name and just quietly forget the YA trilogy and she felt that it would be okay to kind of be honest about the fact that I had three books under my belt already yeah. because I'm essentially I was essentially debuting as an adult mm. debut and that's that's kind of how they're marketing me it's my adult debut so I still get that bite of the debut pie again but yeah it, it was definitely a worry because my YA trilogy has not sold well at all yeah and do you want to go into that if that's okay because I know you said it launched during COVID <laughs> like like so many ill-fated books I'm afraid yeah, yeah uh it was so I got the deal in 2018 and it launched in June of 2020 so a couple of months after lockdown first lockdown there was no bookshops open it didn't obviously why you know not much YA gets into the supermarkets and it certainly didn't get a supermarket slot and I think that Hockey did a wonderful job on the cover they they kind of designed the cover to be like oh this I'm just walking past this in a bookshop and it looks so pretty I'll pick it up and have a look and obviously that couldn't happen so without that sort of walking past moment it didn't really get a chance I don't think to be honest and it's it's not now with the benefit of hindsight it's not particularly commercial pitch i think having an elevator pitch and a, a one sentence logline is increasingly important and okay. i i've never been able to get that down for my ya at all and yep. i wish that i'd kind of realized how similar that aspect of novel writing and well novel selling is to tv and film <laughs> selling actually yeah when did you i mean did you have a sense in the run-up to launch that it was kind of not gonna necessarily pan out how you hoped i had a small sense but i didn't really know what to expect i had no context i didn't really at the time you know i was so as we all were i think during lockdown so kind of like alone and isolated and i hadn't cultivated any kind of you know i'm in my mid to late 30s i not really on social media and down with the YA authors who are very present on social media. And so I, I didn't really cultivate that kind of like network of authors at that point, which I now know is so useful to comparing notes because, you know, especially before we did, before we had publishing radio <laughs> to understanding what's normal and what's possible. And so, yeah, it, it was, I had a, a sort of idea that it, wasn't going to be the smash hit that I had hoped and that we all hoped for for our books but it wasn't until a, like a month or so before yeah. when it became clear that you know a lot of the marketing that I think they'd planned for me couldn't happen because of lockdown and there wasn't really an option to replace it with something else I was like oh this is this is not good is it <laughs> And then, as you've covered in previous episodes, I was tied into writing a further two books, knowing that no one was reading them. <laughs> and then I decided to write another trilogy afterwards because it had gone so well the first time. <laughs> well, they're probably reading them now if your first, if your second one's <laughs> taken off a bit. Yeah, because <laughs> it looks like it's been doing pretty well anyway. <laughs> well, time, time will tell. It's not out until twenty twenty five, so I've got like two years to wait. And yeah, wonder. Oh, is it? Oh, yeah. When is it? I saw the announcement for it. Oh my god! Okay, I, <laughs> it, I think it. I think it'll be absolutely fine. Yeah, and I'm. <laughs> I mean, I'm not glad to hear all of this, right? But I am a little relieved that I'm not the only one who had to learn all of these lessons the hard way, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like everything, uh, minus the agent changes. Like everything you're talking about is is some form of of what I went through, right? Like. Except you, you went through it much faster. You learned much, uh, much faster, and you obviously came out the other side in in a, in a good position, much more quickly than I did. Um, but yeah, I mean that. I, I am interested to hear you say that having an elevator pitch and being able to distill your book down to something like a one line uh, elevator pitch is very important for getting you know going from book to. Uh, enticing somebody to pick up that book, right? 
because uh, I think that's absolutely something that I didn't focus on with my first book, first trilogy, uh, and it is has absolutely hurt me. And and it's not like I haven't tried. Like it's hard. It's <laughs> I it's hard. It's really hard. Yeah, it is. So so having something that fits in that one sentence kind of thing uh, makes a big difference. Now that's a this is leading into a question about your film and TV background. So being that you've been exposed to so many different scripts over your time in that industry, I'm, I'm assuming, uh, cause it sounds like you were the slush pile person and then, you know, going through and editing and making things actually work. Has that affected how you, uh, write and how you approach novels other than, uh, obviously understanding that there's an importance to having that one liner. I think my writing is fairly filmic, I think, in terms of imagery rather than dialogue. I really struggle with dialogue when I'm writing prose, which I think a lot of people who maybe don't write scripts a lot are quite surprised by because I have a lot of writer friends who are like, oh, I'm thinking about becoming a script writer and I'll just like adapt my book. I'll just take all the dialogue out and put it in a script, right? And I'm just like going to die this is not what script writing is it's it's all about imagery and what you're seeing it's screen so you're telling a story on screen not through dialogue that's that's audio so uh yeah i think i'm probably quite image focused in my writing and i have a very strong censor as i'm writing which is not always helpful because the editor in me is being like this is shit this is shit (laughs) this is not working i I know why this is not working but i do not have the energy right now to make it work (laughs) and sort of trying to put that script editor in a box and be like wait until the second draft when you're going to be useful (laughs) is quite tricky sometimes (laughs) yeah i feel that I've, I wasn't a script but I think editor. We but... all have that sometimes, right? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, we all have that. <laughs> Indeed. Do you think? Do you think the one sentence pitch is particularly important in YA versus adult, or are they kind of both useful? I guess I don't. I mean, they're all, but they're useful to an extent in both. But uh, I don't know. I think I feel like I'm not necessarily saying this from a place of huge expertise now, but I feel like YA to get the bigger deals, I think you do need to be super hooky and have the elevator pitch in a way that maybe adult, you have a little bit more leeway, but I don't know. I'm not basing that on anything more than gut feeling really. And kind of looking at my friends and what YA recently has got the bigger deals. No, no, that's fine. Um, and just this is like a bit of a tangent, really, not not more of a comment than a question. <laughs> um, but I've I've been listening to another podcast re- called Cover Meetings, um, and it's about cover designers in the book industry. And they they're kind of talking about book design and cover design. And I one that I found interesting that they're talking about recently is how one of the things designers find very frustrating is that all that covers look the same in all formats and I was thinking about that when you're talking how you felt like your book was designed to look good on a shelf and then it had to survive as as an ebook and one of the things that that gets covers vetoed or approved is whether they look good as a thumbnail but that means that everything looks the same in the bigger version and just all stuff like that where it was making me think about how because what you know their preference would be is that we have a different cover for every format because that that to designers is what would look Mm. good um, of course, getting publishers to agree to that is probably not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, I'd never thought about that before. And I guess if you <laughs> one of the lucky few who gets it blown up big on a poster on the tube or something, then that must be a whole other thing to navigate. Yes. I did wonder, because, you know, Yellowface has been on lots of posters, and I did wonder, did they design this for ebook or poster or tote? I mean, it looks good in a tote bag. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask a bit about your Orbit deal as well? Because I think that that when you mentioned it was in a preempt, and I know you'd said on your site that Orbit fought off a lot of competition hmm. for it. <laughs> yeah, we had quite, I mean, it, it all happened quite quickly. I was sort of expecting to sit for a couple of months like I did for the YA, but I think it was about a week and a half after we went on sub, we had quite a lot of uh, publishers taking it to acquisitions. And then 
Orbit came in with a preempt for world rights and we said no to that and we had a we then had a preempt from another publisher and Orbit came back with huh. another preempt which we said no to and then they upped their offer for preempt for world english which we were like you know what this this feels decent and they had a really good vision for what they wanted to do with it and i think my agent felt that there was a lot of interest brewing from other parties we knew it was with acquisitions with quite a lot of other publishers but we were just like you know what let's just we really wanted the us deal and uh orbit was kind of guaranteeing that tied up us uk so we just thought you know what let's go with that knowing that we've got both us and uk in the bag for a really good amount of money let's just bite the bullet and orbit have such a good reputation as well and they had been so enthusiastic about it um so yeah yeah that makes it going with them. yeah that enthusiasm makes a big difference for sure Sorry, go ahead, Sonia. So did you go to the US first? I was just asking if you, you went out to the US first. You're UK based like me, or if you tried, I don't know what the strategy is on that side. I'm trying to remember. I think we I think we went out simultaneously, or there wasn't long between between the two. I think it was maybe a couple of days between the two, if anything. Um yeah, I know that because my the agency I'm with uh, my agent is based in the UK, but the agency has a US office as well. And so the kind of head, the agent who runs the agency took it out in the US and my agent took it out in the UK. And they were talking to each other all the time about strategies and everything. Uh, but yeah, I think we were, I was very clear that the US was uh, a target for me. And I, yeah because my YA never got a US deal. And I think particularly in YA, and I don't know if it's the same in adult, but if you if you don't get a US deal, then you kind of don't get a lot of attention from yeah. UK booksellers either. Yep. We didn't get a chance to talk to him about it, but I think it was in episode two where the with the booksellers where Jeremy was mm-hmm. there, JT Greyhouse. So he, he is American based, but he didn't sell his American rights. So he got a UK deal with Galanx. And essentially, Jabberwocky sort of self-publish authors in the states who don't have an American deal. So that that's a yeah. Most of his sales in the U.S. are from the bookstore that he's affiliated with, I believe, because it's yeah. yeah, it is a much bigger market. I I do have a, a question for you about that and about the deal. So you, you mentioned that you know it, a preempt became essentially an auction, at least between a, a few of the interested parties, and that there was enthusiasm on the orbit side that was besides good money uh, that helped convince you. What kind of information did they present you with? Because you also mentioned that you felt like they had a good plan for it, etc. Don't you know you don't have to tell me anything that you feel would make uh, your, your publisher upset if you shared. But I am interested to, to hear like what that back and forth was like, what kind of materials they presented that convinced you that kind of thing. So I will say it wasn't, it, it wasn't exactly like there was an auction of preempts going on. It was more that this second publisher came in with a preempt and we just said, mm, that's not as high as what Orbit are offering. So uh, that's just going to be a no. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. And then Orbit went up. What they sent was essentially a marketing document that was sort of like a list of quotes from all of their editors and like their team saying what they liked about the book and what they had planned to do with it, the kind of place they'd sit, sitting in the market they said they wanted to do it in a hardback in the UK, which was quite important to me because I never had a UK hardback before. All these little mini author goals that you're just like, I'd like to tick this off, please, at some point in my career. And talking about subscription boxes, you know, all of that stuff that I suppose in some ways feels quite generic, but the way that they spoke about it, it was clear that they had thought about it and they'd talked about it and that they'd done so very quickly as a big team of UK and US and it was like okay well if the UK and US team are all coming together to figure this out within two weeks with all of the other work that they have doing that they have on then that's a good sign yeah yep I mean when when 
that enthusiasm is married with money, that's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> I, I am interested to hear whether any of that made it into your contract with Orbit or whether it was just, you know, uh, unofficial information. That's a good question. I should probably have looked more closely at my contract. I just trust my agent to sort it. I think that the hardback UK, I think, is in the contract. I don't know if any of the kind of marketing stuff is, but I don't, does that usually get put into contracts? I know that some of my friends, I know, well, I know one of my friends has had her agent put like a minimum marketing spend into a book contract before. And then the publisher was like, we're not going to tell you if we're honoring that or not. We're not going to tell you what we're spending our money on. So there's no way for them to, to make that, to kind of enforce that, I suppose. So I suppose there's no real point in adding it in. Yeah, there was none of that in mine. And I think it was entirely just my agent being like, I trust this editor. Uh, so, and I, I mean, I do think there's an element of like, if they drop a lot of money on it and then they don't market it, they really have like, fuck themselves over a little bit. So. <laughs> yeah. or, or a lot bit. Yeah. Proportional um, to the <laughs> amount of money they oh, kicked in. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Sorry, I I, yeah. I I froze there for a minute, so I didn't hear a, a whole lot of that. But yeah, as, as far as I can tell, not many of those kinds of things make it into contracts. But besides money being the, the best factor, uh, the best guarantee there is, I, it seems like more people should be fighting to get at least certain things, things that make sense to, to make contractual, uh, make sense to have at least some things put in there if the publisher would sign it, right? I think if I had the leverage, I would be requesting arcs and contracts. I mean, I, yep. I I know you can ask and it probably just won't help anyone, but I think requesting arcs is like demonstrate if they've at least made them or, <laughs> uh, and if hopefully if they make them, they'll think, well, we should send them out, you know, but, <laughs> but just because giving books away seems to be so effective. I mean, it just consistently seems to get a lot of results. These days, I'd love to interview the fourth wing lady, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or her editor. Yeah. Or both. Mm-hmm. Or both. We, I don't think we've had an editor on before, have we? Well, we, we've asked some and they basically said, hell no. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah. I wonder why it is that giving away arcs is so successful. And is it just the social media side of things? I because my when my ex came out for Midnight's Twins, my my first book, I think it was they went out really really late because no one could get into the warehouse to get them because of lockdown, <laughs> and so only I don't think many went out in fact before before launch. But I don't know how much of a difference it would have made. But I think a lot of it also depends on the packaging, doesn't it? You see some of those beautiful arcs that get the gorgeous kind of like individual packaged in their special little boxes with extra little treats and stuff and I guess those make social media much more than things that just arrive in the post by themselves yep well I think it's uh so for indies it's a it's a big strategy to have certain content that you give away to encourage people to buy into other books in your series or in your world and there are you know there have been a few acquisitions lately from people who gathered a following on Wattpad which is where essentially you're giving fiction away for free and then from that and I think it is about building readership and fan base and the trade-off is you know people will take a chance on someone they don't know if they don't have to pay anything <laughs> and then there's just the practical side at least in the UK for all the crates and stuff where you, you really have to have those arcs a year out to even have a shot at a, at a crate so if, you, if you're I guess mid-list and you don't get a, an arc out till three months before you've missed that boat three times over <laughs> Have you noticed like the difference this second time with the new book deal compared to the first one and how, how you've been treated or how things are going with that? Yeah, I mean, I haven't had a huge amount of communication yet because it's all quite fresh and because we've got until yeah. May 2025. So I know that there are things in the, in the works. I've been kept in the loop on, uh, you know, approaching subscription boxes and covers and I believe that arcs are supposed to be coming out just over a year in advance of publication date which is very different from the YA which was a month (laughs) before publication date 
So in that respect, yes, it's it's been very promising so far. I I'm aware that I'm sort of sounding a bit ungrateful about it. It's just because I kind of don't trust any of it and I don't trust any of the success anymore. And I'm like, yeah, it seems great now. Could all go to shit tomorrow. (laughs) Who knows? Um, But at the moment, I am I am happy. And yeah, it feels promising. Yeah. And there's been a, a really nice warm fulsome reaction from people when we announced and you know when it gets mentioned yeah in a way that there wasn't for the first trilogy oh sorry you don't sound ungrateful actually i was was thinking about hugh howie and how he talked about like when he started getting approached because he was approached many many times for film stuff and every time he would you know people would say oh we're definitely going to make it it's definitely going to happen and he would just be kind of like yeah sure if you say so because he just assumed nothing ever would um, and it wasn't that he was ungrateful, he was just, like, checked out emotionally, I guess. Would you consider yeah. doing your own scripts for an adaptation? Sorry, yeah, I would. I I would love to now. I didn't think that I would before, but I think now, yeah, I would quite like to. And it's becoming more common now, I think, as well, for authors to adapt their own books, which is positive. Hmm. Okay. I hadn't heard of that, actually. I mean, I'm I'm super interested. In that. <laughs> Sorry, there's a bit. Go on. There's a bit of lag on my side. No, go ahead. <laughs> oh, I was I was just going to comment that I love that trend, and I I would love if it became more common for authors to, you know, develop their own scripts, have a real pathway into doing something with those scripts that they developed off their own work. Do you have a plan for that? Once you develop a script, do you? know what your next step is or is it still like everybody else just kind of hope some film person approaches you uh so i haven't at the moment started writing the adaptation of the adult trilogy i am we haven't yet gone out on sub to production companies with it because of the strike the hollywood strike it's it's meant that everything's just kind of like gone quiet on that front but now that that is over i think there are sort of plans in motion to take it out on sub i personally wouldn't start writing any adaptation of my book unless it got optioned and someone and the production company said yeah we'd we'd be open to you writing it and we will pay you some money for that yeah (laughs) um i do know some authors who have written adaptations of their books as their uh spec scripts or calling card scripts i think Uh david called it in his episode yeah and I think that can be a really good exercise to kind of get into the the way of script writing and the differences between scripts and novels and kind of treating them as two very separate beasts and separate forms of storytelling. Yeah, for sure. Is that submission to production companies happening through your same literary agent? Uh, do they have a, a film person in-house? How's that working? They don't have someone in-house. They use a a few different film agents the person who is i think taking mine on submission is someone that they've used a lot before and who's had a lot of success she's based in the uk but i think she has a lot of links to the us as well cool i personally am sort of feeling like i i don't know what's going to happen with it because it's fantasy it's very it would be very expensive to make yeah and so even with the nice starry deal it would someone would have to take a bit of a punt on it well, before publication we'll cut that because out because it's <laughs> <laughs> it would be very cheap and easy to put to, to make the perfect acquisition 50 pounds an episode it's yours <laughs> and i'm i'm well i i shouldn't assume did that same process happen with your first trilogy the first trilogy the agency i was with had an agent in-house who was based in the US and yeah they took it out to production companies and I think I had one meeting hmm. and it didn't go anywhere but again that was very very expensive to make yeah so and it also didn't have a clear like defined genre yep I would say and film and TV in particular they like their genres it's why crime is like evergreen yeah for tv because it's such a clear well-known genre with such clear stakes all the way through yeah so yeah i i'm realistic i would say Hmm. about 
chances of fantasy and sci-fi getting screen deals. Yeah. It's becoming more common though. So I wonder if it ever gets to the point where it's easier to adapt because that is an established genre. It definitely become more common. I mean, Game of Thrones just opened up the landscape in that way, in a way that hadn't before for TV. It was such a game changer. But I think if you look at what's actually getting optioned at the moment, the vast majority of it is still contemporary. Yeah. Because it's cheaper to make. And I mean, obviously, these books are still very good, but they are cheaper to make. So they are slightly safer bets. Yep, for sure. You mentioned earlier on um, not having a lot of contacts, not that, you know, and that was part of not knowing what to expect or what was normal. And I'm assuming now you, you probably know a few more people in the industry. And I just wondered if if you kind of reach this point um, or if you ever had conversations with, with Orbit about what good sales look like or what they're expecting from you from the new book. Cause, and I guess I'm just asking because sort of I'm just past a year out of since my debut and I think I'm just now at the point where I understand the kind of sales my publisher was hoping for and starting to understand what my own royalty statements mean and that kind of thing but yeah just just curious if if anyone ever talks to you about it or if you just figure that out yourself now did can I can I ask you something back before I answer that question yes yes did you figure that out yourself did you figure that out yourself or was that through conversations with your publisher where they told you what sales they were hoping for and expecting. So I had long periods of silence with actually, um, with certainly on the UK side, because essentially like my publicist left and then a bunch of editors left and some went on maternity leave and, and all my posts was going to a previous address and all this stuff, which I didn't realize. Um, and I didn't know how I was doing until I got, uh, surprise royalty payments in March from Harper. Uh, So yeah, I had to, I realized that my calculations were off because when we look at royalties and sales, I'd always kind of assumed like one sale means I get about $1 or one pound, like very basic back of the napkin math. But actually for hardback, that's very different. It's about 250 or something back of the napkin math again. So, um, I assumed I was doing worse than I was and was surprised when Book Eaters earned out in the States and in the UK earned out the, the trilogy by about Christmas. And I didn't realize that I didn't need as many sales as I thought I did, if that makes sense. Like I was thinking, oh, I've got to get like, uh, I don't know, 60,000 sales to pay off the UK advance. And actually it was more like 26,000 or something. I don't know. Anyway, I'm rambling too much, but no, I had to figure it out. And I think... I kind of now have a sense of what what good is and what bad is and um, how that's going. And talking to other debuts helps as well. It's difficult because you've got to talk to people that have a kind of similar deal and similar genre as yourself, as well as um, the forgotten lost tribes like Scott. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) Sorry, Scott. (laughs) That's what I'm here for. (laughs) I haven't had that conversation with Orbit, I will say. I... I don't think it would ever have occurred to me to have that conversation because I just would assume that I wouldn't get an answer. And that might be really, really unfair. I I might ask you to cut this out later. (laughs) I, yeah, I, I had no idea. I still don't really have an idea for my original trilogy, what sales were expected. I didn't get my first royalty statement until, uh, about, this time last year and so two two years after it, it the first book was published so I had no idea how much I'd sold until yeah a year ago and it wasn't as horrendous as I thought it was going to be but it was it was it was less than you Scott uh for sure on the three books and yeah it, it it's not not great but I have no idea whether that's how that compares to the small advance that I got you know yeah. I don't know whether they've made money on me even if I haven't out earned my royalties and probably won't ever on that yeah. they, they probably have made money on you I mean the point at which they start making money is quite low to be honest like l- lower than you think always because you get like a hundred k advance and you sell 45k paperback copies like which is 45 grand, then they break even. And if you sell 66 or something, that's when you would kind of roughly earn out. But 
it, it's better than that. It's not. The, I mean, he's it's more generous than than his estimate. Yeah, generally speaking, I think they wait, and I mean, they've been around forever. So theoretically, if they know any numbers, they know this number. They wait their advance versus their planned sales slash print run, etc., very heavily in their favor. To where I believe they make money on just about everybody, right? Just by virtue of putting a book in their catalog and maybe shipping it to stores, they make their money back, you know, whether whether it does well for the author or not, they they at least make their money back. They held back quite a lot for returns as well. I think Scott and I were both surprised by that. I think it's something like Macmillan was sitting on 38k of sales that they were holding back as reserve against returns. So so I did wow. get a royalty check from Tor in in May and it was for like 42 US dollars because they they just have a big pot that they're sat on in case they have to pulverize a big chunk of my books. And as far as I can tell though that reserve against returns is pretty formulaic but not always the same from author to author and nobody necessarily understands on the author at least as far as I've seen on the author agent side like what they're holding back and why and when that's going to be released other than it should be less the next time as the yeah one one thing i will throw out is i think if you get the chance as an author this is just more for the listeners than, than holly specifically just to try and get a time limit put mm. on reserve against returns mm-hmm. i think you know mcmillan has a very high reserve but they can only sit on it for three months and after that they have to release it and like actually pay you yeah but for some one of my author friends there is no time limit on her reserve against returns so the penguin could just like sit on it forever <laughs> wow that doesn't seem right at all <laughs> no it doesn't <laughs> we'll pay you this money except this industry <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah that's interesting i i hadn't thought about that and i hadn't i hadn't considered that as a target uh contract inclusion so that's a good point so going back to something we we talked about a a bit earlier, the elevator pitch, the one-liner, what a high concept, whatever you want to call it. So being that you've spent a whole bunch of time in the script world and, and TV and film and now novels, and you obviously identified a difference between your first trilogy and now this work that you've just sold on a very good, well, I shouldn't say very good because that's going to be misconstrued, a positive. Very good is six figure, isn't it? Yeah. Is it very good or good? I don't yeah. know. One or two. I, good is up to ninety nine k. So very good is six figure. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, I'm not. I'm not going to try to categorize your deal, but a larger, <laughs> a larger deal, right? One that made you happy. Could yes. you? Could you take a shot at telling us what makes a good elevator pitch, um, and specifically in context of, um, like what what qualities of a story fit well in a short slash compelling elevator pitch? That's kind of an unfair question to spring on you. And it might be, it might be better in a long form answer. So if that's the case, uh, feel free to say so. And I will, I will be looking anxiously (laughs) for your blog post. Um, I suppose the thing, I think there are lots of different answers to that question. I suppose the problem, Mm -hmm. the way that I went at it, the second time round was that instead of kind of coming up with an idea, it's like, oh, maybe there's a world where it's like when you dream, you go into a totally different universe. And da, da, da. Mm-hmm. I sat down and thought, okay, what are retellings are really hot right now? Yep. I was quite, this is going to sound really cynical. Retellings are really hot right now, but Greek retellings and Roman retellings have been done to death and I am not the person to tell those yep. anyway because I don't love them yep. like other authors do. Yep. So what is the retelling that I would love to write if I could write a retelling given that retellings are super trendy? And I've always been a massive Tudor nerd. So I was like, okay, is there a Tudor retelling that I can tell that feels me? And a fantasy retelling of The Six Wives of Henry VIII felt very me, but also felt very marketable. So I literally started my entire idea from that elevator pitch and I grew it out from there. 
rather than coming up with a lot of different kind of elements and then smushing them together into an, a smushier elevator pitch, I suppose. So that was how I did it. I think that the elevator pitches that I have heard that have really made me sit up have been the ones that this is like a, this is a TV phrase, a same but different. Mm-hmm. So things that make me immediately go, oh, I know that that is going to be like that other book that I really loved, but it's got a different twist. So I know I'm not going to be reading a copycat book. Yeah. And I think pitches that do that in some way are the ones that feel hooky and commercial and marketable at the moment, I would say. Yep. You guys may disagree. (laughs) No, I, I completely agree. No, no, I find that interesting. Um, I think Scott may have dropped out. I was going to ask one question off that very quickly, though, which is, um, do you think of your book as a retelling? I, I know that's a bit of a weird question, but just because I remember when I saw the announcement online, I thought, oh, it's kind of like a historical fantasy. And there are some books I've seen. Yeah, and I it thought, is a historical oh, they could fantasy, be... but I do think of it as a retelling because... It's a marketing term. Like the characters okay. are, have the same names as the real life people did and there's yeah. a lot of similarities in terms of the uh, events mm. that happen are kind of like a nod to what happened in real life or a twist on what happened in real life so I yeah I, think, I do kind of think, I think it's, it's about setting thing. expectations isn't it it's, it's sort of like it's saying yeah there's a historical basis but you can expect there to be changes and they are deliberate not just me not knowing history but it's like a deliberate choice to reshape the story yeah um I, Right, I think we've lost Scott, but that's okay because we're probably close to the end of our time. Um, can I, I ask you if, if, if you can tell readers where to find you, where your books are, and a, a general plug about yourself? Okay. I can hear you, Scott. <laughs> oh, you can? Okay, so... Son, oh, you know. I can't. Son, you can't. Maybe it's, maybe it's my connection. That's okay. Just just roll with it. I'm, I'm good. That was a very good answer. I uh, can be found at www.hollyrace.com. My... Instagram and my TikTok, my t- I'm not on TikTok very much, but they can be found at holly underscore race.com. And I am on X as Ecarillo, which is my name spelt backwards, but I'm not really on there anymore. <laughs> um, my books that can be bought so far are Midnight's Twins, A Gathering Midnight and Midnight Dark and Golden, and they are YA urban fantasy and the Tudor adult fantasy that is coming out May 2025 is called Six Wild Crowns. And if you would add it to Goodreads, I would be eternally grateful. I have no idea if it makes any different sales, but let's go with it. Can't hurt, right? You've been listening to the Publishing Radio Podcast with Sonny Dean and Scott Drakeford. Tune in next time for more in-depth discussion on everything publishing industry. See you later.